is a writer, consultant, and investor. He's the author of The Diff, a newsletter studying inflections in finance and technology, with more than 50,000 subscribers. He's also the host of a new podcast called The Riff, co-hosted with Eric Tornberg and produced by Turpentine Media. Vern, welcome to The Splinter. Great to be here. So, Bern, you've described the Diff as a publication dedicated to exploring the technologies, companies, and trends enabling a more high-variance future. What exactly do you mean by that? And is a high-variance future necessarily a better one, or is it merely a more interesting one? Um, yeah, I'll take the second one first. It's it's definitely a more interesting future, and I think that is just something that you have to be aware of with technology is that um, there are there are many technologies that are net good. There are some that are net bad. Um, what they all do, though, is they they magnify the ability for people to influence the world. So some of it comes down to what particular axes of influence they magnify, and some of it comes down to who adopts them and how do they use them. Um, but yeah, I think that um, I think studying that stuff is is really important. Like you can you know you can look at history as um, names and dates and personalities and things, but you can also, like a lot of it is just easier to understand if it's refracted through these technology changes. So um, if you read a book like The Prize um, on the history of the oil industry, there is, you can tell totally coherent stories about the 20th century that don't really mention oil, but you can also tell stories of 20th century history where oil is like the defining feature of of history and where oil is, um, you know, precipitates part of the arms race between um, Germany and England before World War One, and then um, dominates the strategic considerations of both Japan and Germany in World War Two, and then ends up having this really significant effect on U.S. foreign policy, where the U.S. was a massive oil importer and um, reached the point where the oil, the marginal barrel of oil was being produced by countries that were not necessarily all that friendly with the U.S. And so it put the U.S. in all sorts of tricky moral situations. And then, you know, you can retell, you can tell the story of the collapse of the Soviet Union as um, they tried communism, it didn't work. And you can also retell it as they um, they ended up with an economy where exports were heavily dependent on oil and then oil prices collapsed and they just weren't able to pay for all of the, all the stuff they had promised. So, um, yeah, I think looking looking at those kind of material constraints is a really important way to think about history, which doesn't mean that it's not um, not the effect of individuals, like going back to the idea of technology as, as leverage, as increasing the impact of individuals. It definitely increases the impact of people who would be high impact under many different circumstances. And, um, you know, you can... You can think of a lot of the the leaders of tech companies today as people who might have taken a path that would be um, closer to government or like the raw pursuit of power in a historical context. In fact, if you look at someone like Napoleon, he was sort of this very early example of a, a STEM nerd who turned into more of an organizational leader because um, he was he was calculating things like artillery trajectories and stuff like that and. That would have been the the bleeding edge frontier technology when he was in school and starting his military career. So he did start out as someone who was more of a technologist and then became the the operator of an effective organization. And um, like right now, you can you could reach great heights of power without having to launch a coup or something. You can just um, run a larger and larger company that's more and more influential. So. I think we sort of we probably have a lot more um, figures like that today, just because the population has grown and um, there's, there's, in some ways, more social mobility. But yeah, they're they're more likely to be in the private sector, running big companies rather than in government. 
The concept of efficient markets is maybe the most influential idea to have come out of financial economics in the last century. As an outsider who's interested in finance, I'm often confused with the language that people use to debate the phenomenon, often asking whether markets are or are not efficient, when in reality, I would imagine that efficiency is a property that emerges from the behavior of participants over time. So if this morning you and I are trading rationally and with all the best information available to us, markets would be quite efficient. But if this afternoon we're grumpy and tired and trading erratically, markets would score much lower in terms of efficiency. It's an idea I like also because it maps onto my internal model of what the best investors in the world must do in practice. They keep an eye on the market, they identify mispricing, and then they trade against it up to and until the point where some average level of market efficiency is reestablished. So I guess my question is, first, what do you think of this idea of efficiency as a time-varying property of markets? And second, if you had to guess at what the right measure of market efficiency would consist of, what data would you try to incorporate into that metric? Would it be trade volume, pricing data, some entropy-based measures of information content? What would that look like? Yeah, I think um, so. I think the first thing to start with is that when people talk about market efficiency, it's really important to define terms and within academic finance, you can actually use efficient market, the efficient market hypothesis in different ways. So it is a model of human behavior. And like any other model, part of its utility is that it's descriptive of the world. And part of its utility is that it says, given a very small number of premises, here's what we should expect to happen. And if we don't, if we see that this thing is not happening, we now have a very short list of potential reasons why, and we can investigate those in a more structured way. So that that I think is the first thing is that when you you take these assumptions like okay every investor has perfect information every investor is this rational utility maximizer well if those aren't true and you know we've all we are investors or have met other human beings like we know that people are not perfectly rational and we're, we have imperfect information etc um, then then we could say that the markets won't be perfectly efficient um, I think your your point on efficiency is an emerging uh, an emergent property um, one of the really interesting frameworks for that is um, Andrew Lowe's idea of adaptive markets. So his view is that when you talk about market efficiency, what you should really think about is markets continuously getting more efficient along the axes that investors care about and are making money at, and then continuously getting less efficient in whatever axis they don't care about. So sometimes when you're thinking about market efficiency, it has, you can say the market is efficient at one level, and then you, you take the, the meta and say it must be inefficient at some other level. So one of the arguments that is half an argument for, half an argument against market efficiency is suppose that the efficient markets hypothesis is not true. Then there's a large monetary incentive for people to start doing research and picking stocks, at which point it becomes true. And then once that's true, once everyone has done the work and perfectly priced every stock, They've all made a lot of money, but now prices are perfectly efficient. And so more research is a waste of time. So you're actually trying to think of what is the efficient frontier for research and what is the efficient frontier for free riding on other people's research. So um, before index funds, you could try to be a passive investor, but you were still making a bunch of choices and you didn't know what the quality of those choices was. So it's something like, okay, you're going to pick, I don't know, 50 stocks and, um, you're going to invest in them at random. Well, if you pick 50 stocks on an unweighted basis, you're going to pick, you know, 40 tiny companies that don't really have a business. And then this random assortment of 10 legitimate companies, if you pick based on companies, you know, well, you have probably done less of an index bet and more of a bet that is going to be tied to one national brand names that you're familiar with and two businesses in your 
in your location or in your social network. So um, you you end up with less diversification that way. And it was also just expensive to to create a diversified portfolio. I think there was a there was a study a while ago where the average trade made by a retail investor in the 50s, they would be paying effectively like a two or 3% transaction cost, even in a very efficiently priced stock, like even a very liquid market, just from the fixed commissions. So it could get um, it could get pretty expensive to to do that. And then as, as it's gotten cheaper to do index investing, it's gotten cheaper to free ride on other investors um, who are who are actually doing the work, which is kind of nice for them. It's It's bad for them in the sense that assets flow from actively managed funds to passive funds but it's nice for them in the sense that um they they don't face this direct stock picking competition from passive funds so the passive funds don't like they only react to new information through the behavior of active investors but yeah generally um so like i guess you could you could imagine a case where if you say the market in terms of asset prices is perfectly efficient. That can only be true if the market in terms of human capital deployment is extremely inefficient. Because to get like that last little bit of efficiency, you need a whole lot more work, but that last little bit of efficiency doesn't pay very well. So you don't the people who do that work don't get rewarded for it very much. So yeah, markets they they have like an efficiency carrying capacity that's more based on how much information is out there, how effectively can people process it, how how rigorously do they think about things. And then there's always inefficiency at some level. And like even within markets, you can sometimes see cases where um, this is actually true. I think it's true of a lot of things right now where within a given category, prices are pretty efficient. Like within a given um, asset class or industry, prices are efficient relative to other things in that industry because there are so many, so many funds using so much capital where their strategy is we're going to be um, – industry neutral, factor neutral, et cetera. So instead of picking the best stocks and then shorting the worst ones, it's going to be within this industry, we are going to pick the best stocks and the worst stocks. But even slicing that up further, it's going to be like the best of the high momentum stocks and we're shorting the worst of the high momentum stocks. We're going to buy the best large companies, short the worst large companies, et cetera. And so if you're comparing any two companies that are precisely matched in those categories, their prices are going to be really efficient relative to one another. But there isn't really a mechanism for, um, in that model, there's not a mechanism for saying this industry is too cheap, like, you know, renewables overhyped and oil and gas underhyped, therefore move capital from one to the other. It's more like you actually look for which industries going to have the larger gaps in valuation that could be exploited by a fund. And often, the industries that are overpriced um, and are just overhyped will have more of those opportunities. There are more people who are less informed, just got involved in the industry, so they're making bad decisions. You have more companies that are newer, less established, and you know some of them are really great, some of them are really bad. And so, um, so if you have these um, sector neutral, factor neutral hedge funds all piling into those industries. Then what happens is those industries actually have a lot more liquidity, which means that valuations will tend to go up. Like there will be a buyer if you need to sell, there will be a seller if you need to buy. And so um, given that liquidity does have some value, which also ties into the market efficiency question, right? Of um, do people overpay for liquidity? Do they underpay for liquidity? Um, does this depend on whether the marginal investor is a levered investor or not, et cetera? But like regardless of, of where that goes, you can have this case where um, the hedge funds, even though their net exposure is neutral, they do end up exacerbating these industry-wide swings. And then they're they're creating efficiency within the industry and creating more inefficiency as a side effect outside the industry. 
Continuing down that path, one of the recurring themes in your writing is the idea of bubbles. Speaking at an event in 2008, Peter Thiel presented a personal theory of his as to why so many booms and busts had occurred in rapid succession from the 1970s onward, saying that, quote, there has not been enough real growth in the economy. The reason so many of these booms didn't work was that the whole economy was not growing. It's not a question of finance or politics or regulation, but of science and technology and the rate at which science and technology are progressing. In your writing, you present a very different account of bubbles and describe them as a sort of underrated coordination mechanism for the economy. Borrowing a Thielian zero to one framework to do so, you say that bubbles are an expression of the desire to build a definite version of the future. So for Thiel, bubbles are a symptom of stagnation, but for you, they're a necessary ingredient for progress. Did I miss something? Is there a way to consolidate both views? Well, I would, I would borrow from Peel again. Um, let's see, he used that term, um, that line failure is overdetermined. And I think you can also argue that bubbles are overdetermined. There are a lot of different ways to get a bubble. And um, there are also bubbles. We sort of know them when we see them, but then we can debate them at the time and in retrospect and so on. Um, but I would say that the main distinguishing feature of a bubble is if the behavior of new investors is going to affect the perceived fundamentals based on like it's going to affect the perceived fundamentals as other investors perceive them and um, this creates a feedback loop so paul graham had this wonderful piece about what happened at yahoo because he was at yahoo during the bubble and he was asking why do things go so wrong but also why do they go so well at first and what he said was there the feedback loop worked like this yahoo did really well. It was a fantastically profitable investment for its VCs and for the early shareholders. And so other VCs would look at that and they would say, I want to back something like Yahoo. And so they would, instead of doing the the really broad portal strategy, they would find some narrower company to back. And then they give that company a big check and that company needs to find some way to grow. And the company asks, well, how can we grow? Let's buy some display ads. Like we're marketing online to people who are online. So we need to market online. So we'll buy display ads. Well, who sells the display ads? It's Yahoo. And so the next quarter, Yahoo makes even more money than people thought and is this profitable business. And so there's another round of investors who say, clearly this internet thing is legitimate. Like people thought Yahoo was just this frothy speculative thing. But look, it's a real business. It's actually growing and it's very profitable. So we can we can make money selling um books or shoes or dog food or whatever online. So we'll do that. And then at some point you need so much more money flowing into the system that it's just not sustainable. And if sentiment changes, then suddenly the the fundamentals change. So I, I would say that's, that's one piece. Um, part of what Teal is talking about, I believe when he talks about this low growth leading to bubbles situation is that leverage is an important component in bubbles. It doesn't happen every single time, but most of the time you can get a bigger bubble if there's leverage. And um, the reason for that is actually something articulated by um, uh, the economist Hyman Minsky, who um, politically very different um, and like politically, he was kind of a, a post-Keynesian left-wing kind of guy. And he, But he has this really, really interesting model of how bubbles work when there's leverage involved, where he says that when the economy is really weak, no one wants to lend money, no one wants to take risk. But if you do, you get really high returns. So when unemployment is really high, you can hire a lot of people without wages going up. And when utilization in factories is really low, you're, the next marginal thing you produce doesn't require any capital expenditure. It's just using equipment that would otherwise be idle. And the, so your, your returns as an investor are really high in that scenario. And what he says is that there's this evolution where as 
as the economy starts growing, the only way to get those kinds of returns is to borrow more money. And then if you if people are borrowing money, then there's more liquidity in the economy, there's more spending power. And so there's more demand for for the goods and services that are being produced. And so you can actually end up with this positive feedback loop. And um, you can get to the point where the reason that there is still demand is that there is more lending going on and that there's not enough underlying demand, but if there's enough borrowing and enough expansion, then that creates enough demand for growth to continue. And then you can even reach the point where the, the there's a set of borrowers who even under the best of circumstances will not actually be able to pay back their loans, but the supply of loans keeps going up. And so they're able to continuously borrow and maybe these borrowers own assets and those assets are appreciating. Um, because of the supply of credit. And so they're able to borrow more money and keep on spending. And this, I think, is a pretty good description of what was going on in the the mid 2000s with real estate, where there were a lot of people who were just, um, their lifestyle was economically unviable. Like they just did not earn enough money to buy the homes that they were buying. But the homes were appreciating in price enough that they could pay some of the bills by refinancing their mortgages and taking out some cash. And so for a while, if you looked at like, if you looked at GDP level or unemployment level fundamentals, things actually looked really good. But if you looked at what was driving that, you you had to say that um, at one point, you know, the economy was growing and credit wasn't really growing. But then at some point, credit is growing as fast as the economy. And then over time, it's like you need, you know, $2 of additional borrowing to create $1 of GDP. And then it's $3 of borrowing to create $1 of GDP. And at some point, um, it just gets untenable and it's it's hard to continue that borrowing forever. And then, and then things revert and then you have to, then the actual underlying fundamentals, not just the liquidity driven, credit driven fundamentals come into play. So I think that's, that's another, um, that's kind of an adjacent bubble hypothesis or more, maybe more of a mechanism behind this bubble hypothesis. But I think it can, it can simultaneously be true that bubbles are um, often irrational at some level and, or generally irrational at some level that they do cause economic harm. We have too much capital going into one space and then um, it all has to flow out into somewhere else. And that's just, um, there are a lot of frictions and transaction costs involved in that. But at the same time, the to me, the promising thing about bubbles is that there is this, this definite vision of the future. And what bubbles really enable is this um, parallelization of growth. So if you think of, um, I think the classic example of this is Moore's Law. So, um, more observed in, I think, the 1960s that chips were getting more efficient at this exponential rate and that you, if you extrapolated that, you got to really crazy stuff not too long. And what happened was that software creators could say that we, we can strongly infer that the next generation of chips is this much faster and therefore we'll build software that has features that can take advantage of that. And then the, the chip manufacturers had to say, well, if this is ever going to run Lotus 1, 2, 3, it needs to be significantly faster. So we need to build a faster chip. So they're both egging each other on and they're doing this in parallel. And if you, if you didn't do it in parallel, if you had to do it in sequence of Intel built the chip, ships the chip, only at that point does Microsoft start designing the software. Then you get a much slower growth cadence because there's actually no need for the faster chips and then there's, there's no ability to run the faster hardware. But when everyone buys into the narrative and the narrative is true, then you actually get this um, this ratcheting up of progress. And I think this kind of thing happened in other industries too. So um, when, when cars first started getting deployed, um, roads were not very good and you would actually buy your gasoline at a general store. Like you'd literally go up to a counter, there would be a guy behind the counter, you would buy, you know, a 
a barrel like of gasoline and um and that's how you'd fill up your car and eventually people realized there could be a a gasoline focused retailer and then you have this two-sided network effect where more gas stations mean it's more viable to buy a car you get rid of the range anxiety more cars on the road means more places that can support a gas station meanwhile these drivers they're they're typically high income people although it's moving more towards a middle class thing and they start to complain that they have this nice expensive car and that a lot of the cost of ownership is because the roads are not good and so um, the last mile of the US transportation system got really uh, got really built up in like a lot in the 1920s and 30s and that actually that was this um, further spur to demand for for cars and therefore demand for gasoline. It was it's very convenient for us at the time that the U.S. had a surplus of oil and um, actually had to restrict the restrict the supply of oil because otherwise there would be a market glut. Um, so that was and I think that that ties back to the idea that if the bubble is based on something real and true and in circa 1925, you could say, the world has incredibly abundant oil and so and cars are a really efficient way to get around so that part is true like this is actually a strict improvement on the horse and the train for many use cases so the bubble was true but it was still a bubble like people were still making these wild extrapolations and it didn't always work perfectly but um you know it definitely worked overall when I was listening to you describe first the uh, dynamic that unfolded at Yahoo and then the sort of Minsky moment phenomenon, I was reminded of something else Peter Thiel said in an interview with Eric Weinstein several years ago when he mentioned that um, in the 1990s, the narrative was the new economy and you lied about growth. In the 2000s, the narrative was about the great moderation and you lied about volatility. And then the 2010s, the narrative was about secular stagnation and you lied about the real interest rates because the first two didn't work anymore. You're uh, an astute observer of the economy. If you had to guess, uh, what lie are we telling ourselves today in the 2020s? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Because um, it seems like like part of, part of what's going on now is that people are very worried about a recession. Consumer sentiment is like sentiment is really bad. And then the macro numbers look really good. And it's hard for both of those to be true at once. Some of it is that sentiment is sometimes this lagging indicator. Like um, I think markets markets will often react to what is the direction things seem to be going and then sentiment reacts to what is the direction things have gone recently. So you sometimes end up with those mismatches and then you can get this weird thing where the cycles sync up and people decide that, hey, things are actually not as bad as I thought, so I should spend more money. And then you can actually have this return of inflation. Um, but it's like, it's kind of hard to figure out why, why there is that mismatch. I think people are very much aware of some of the big issues. So one of them is just um, deglobalization, decoupling from China. Like that is expensive. It probably is more like the recognition of a cost that we were, we were bearing before. So you could, like you could think of some of the nineties and two thousands boom as this sort of accounting trick where on like we, we're, we're looking at the asset side of the ledger, which is we get all this cheap stuff. We're not looking at the liability side of the ledger, which is we're slowly eroding our competitive advantages. And there are a lot of things the U.S. can't make without China. And China may not always want to cooperate with the U.S. making those things. So um, maybe when you recognize those liabilities, you say, actually, things were not as great as we thought back when we thought they were great. But what that feels more like is things were great and now they're really terrible even though it's really just recognizing a reality that's been there the whole time. Um, so yeah, what is, 
what is the lie today? Well, there is this kind of disturbing thing that I think Tyler Cowen pointed out recently, which is that in the 2000s and 2010s, there were a lot of really young tech founders who were doing really amazing things, a lot of really new companies. But now it seems like a lot of those young founders are still in charge of their companies. The companies are just older and the founders are older and we haven't had as many new entrants. And I think some of that is just that software was um, was and is just a really good place to put venture money. So it's a really good place to scale a business, but it's not the only place where you could scale a business. And if you're able to raise a lot of money, you can scale things in other places as well. But it can take a while for investors to shift over to that view and actually say, we're going to back, you know, we're not just doing software, we're also doing defense tech or biotech or whatever. Um, you know, it's hard to learn those sectors. On the other hand, back, I think it was in the, as recently as the 80s that the first venture funds that explicitly said they're only doing software were started. And um, they, at the time, there was just a lot you had to figure out. Like you had um, a lot more fragmentation in operating systems and languages and just a lot more um, change and uncertainty. And because fewer people used software day to day and because programming was this more esoteric thing at the time, like it was, I think like the, the, the mental ramp up in terms of what did you have to figure out to understand software companies might've been similar to what you have to figure out today to understand, you know, some weird drone thing or like a fusion power company or whatever. So we're probably like, because the decision of venture to increasingly go all in on software because it worked so well, it kind of feels like it was obvious at the time, but surely if it had been obvious by the late 80s, then there would have been someone who realized it's not obvious but true much earlier. And there are there are some examples of that. So there was um, recently the founder of um, Investment Group of Santa Barbara gave uh, an interview for the first time in a long time. And that, that company has been basically investing the founder's capital over time and um, has done incredibly well, like started with literally single digit thousands of dollars and now has, I think like a billion dollar plus position in one company and they run a concentrated portfolio. So it's not like, you know, tens of billions of dollars of assets, but like they've, they've compounded the money really nicely and, and they did, they were diversified early in their existence, like 1960s, 1970s, but they did decide pretty early on that software had these unique advantages and they just wanted to learn it better than anybody else. So yeah, a few people did that, but not many. And it's kind of interesting that the person who like, like the people who did that the earliest were typically people who were not raising institutional capital. So someone like Bill Gates, where Microsoft was self-financed from the beginning and um, was just very careful to control their own destiny. When they raised venture money, it was sort of, they were raising money to get some advice and make it easier to IPO, but they didn't need the money and they didn't use the money. Um, and then, yeah, investment group of Santa Barbara, like they're, they're also not, not raising money and then like not pitching investors on this idea, just doing it themselves. So maybe that's, uh, maybe that's a useful heuristic is like, if you, if you can raise LP money to target an industry, then the industry is probably more saturated than you want it to be. And it's only the stuff where it's literally unfundable and it's just you writing personal checks or trying to work in the industry. Like that's, that's the actual one that can become big and where, where being a couple of years ahead and staying a few years ahead of everyone else is really lucrative over time. Another potential explanation for the prevalence of software and in investing is maybe that it's a reflection of the macro environment. A few days ago, our mutual friend Robert Terran at Tailrisk tweeted that software as a service investing was a zero interest rates phenomenon, free cash flow businesses are an inverted yield phenomenon, and deep tech is a rate normalization phenomenon. Nature is healing. 
So maybe that's partially an explanation of it. I think it's, so there's, there is definitely a rates and liquidity element to this stuff, but there's also, there were serious technolo- technological changes that have taken a really long time to roll out. Like um, people still send faxes. So there's still work to be done on the software side, but we live in a very different world if people are always carrying a computer with them, the computer's always online, and it's synced up with all of their other devices. Like That should change how you work. And for any any task or set of tasks that you do with your brain, there's probably some piece of that that can be offloaded to software, and it should be. And it takes a long time, not necessarily because it's hard to get the technology right, but because it's actually like SAS is looking at the the efficient frontier between human effort and computer effort and trying to figure out where can we push that frontier out? Like, what are the things that people do that we can automate more? Um, I'm sure we'll talk some about AI over, over the course of this call, but AI has been a really interesting case in that because there are just a lot of ways that you could imagine incorporating a large language model into an existing software product. And then a lot of ways you could imagine that going wrong. So anyone who does word processing software, for example, so Microsoft Word, Google Docs, et cetera, um, they, they know they could incorporate a lot more LLM, auto-completion, auto-suggestion stuff, but they also really don't want the headline risk of, um, you know, someone uses an LLM to generate an offer letter for a new employee, and they don't realize that the LLM has changed the terms of the offer or something, like it just made a bad guess. And um, in in theory, that stuff is easy to debug, but in practice, it's really hard to get rid of that last hallucination. And so you end up, you do end up seeing it in, it used in a business context. Um, I think the most interesting case of this is LinkedIn, that LinkedIn is telling people it will help them write the intro email. And that's actually a case where it's reducing friction because there's, there's this really easy thing to do when you're trying to reach out to someone new, which is you decide... I don't know this person well or at all. So this is a really high stakes message. So I'm going to get it right. And so then you turn your plan to, to introduce yourself to this person into a draft in your email client. And then the draft just slowly sinks down your list of drafts and never gets sent. So it's like LinkedIn is using this as a, a forcing function to say, you're going to write an intro that is not necessarily great, but is good enough. And that will allow you to do more intros and then after the computer has done the really simple like digital equivalent of handshake and eye contact, once you're actually talking to the person, you probably want to take over and you probably want to do it yourself. But knowing when that handoff happens is non-trivial. And also it, um, it, it raises this question of how much of the importance of the ritual, like the introduction ritual, how much of that importance was that people want to read a well-crafted message in their inbox and how much of it was this is a proof of work that you are actually showing that you looked into this person thought about whether or not it would be fruitful for the two of you to work together and then decided to put some effort into making it happen so software has to it has to navigate these changes in norms that are caused by the software itself Um, so thinking think of things like intra office communication that um there are a lot of things that have switched from a phone call to a Slack message or an email, but figuring out what that efficient frontier is, is not, not trivial. And even figuring out the norms around that, like there's a, I, I, I find the habit of um, sending someone a Slack message that just says, Hey, and then starting the conversation. Like I find that just completely egregious because you like, it's an asynchronous method of communication. So you don't need to get someone's attention. If you need, if you need to start the conversation with, Hey, it should be a phone call, but um, everyone has different views towards this, and sometimes we we like 
theoretically adopt the new technology, but actually implement it in a way that makes it, that puts it at parity with the old one. So this would be something like um, in the nineties, I read about offices where they would, they did have email, but the senior executives would have their emails printed for them and they would read them on the way home. And then they would dictate their answers the next morning to their secretary or something. So you lose a lot of the immediacy of email. You lose the, um, you lose the good async part, which is you can, you have the backlog of emails you have to get to and you spend your evening getting through those emails. Um, you, you lose that if you just treat the email as this is just a slightly different way to deliver an inter-office memo and we're going to just keep all of our norms around that memo the same. But because it's so hard to implement that stuff and because there's this feedback between what technology is available, especially technology for coordinating behavior in large organizations, and then how does it actually, how does that affect optimal behavior? Because of that, there's still a long runway and there's still a lot that software can do within organizations to run them more efficiently. Like I think we may, we may end up looking back on today and saying that, you know, looking back in like 10 years and saying the idea that a VP could want to know some critical business metric and not be able to run a quick SQL query that just, you know, finds the data wherever it is and then reports it back to them. Like the fact that they couldn't do that is absurd. The fact that there were senior executives who didn't know SQL, couldn't actually do a database query was also absurd. Um, we may look back and say that this, like, we're living in this weird dark age where there are little spots of technological adoption, but a lot of the inefficiencies from the previous system remain. Stepping back into markets, but uh, continuing with the theme of adoption, you've thought and written a lot about a very different kind of market as well, which is prediction markets. These are markets in which traders can buy and sell contracts on the outcomes of future events in the real world. And we can all imagine different markets being super useful to different people. So to many companies, next month's inflation is something that they would love to hedge against. And maybe for others, it really does matter if Taiwan gets invaded before Christmas. And not to mention, there's a major positive externality to these markets because a byproduct of all this trading is that the prevailing market price is often a great estimate of the likelihood of the event itself. But when we ask why these markets aren't more mainstream, we're often given two different but interrelated answers, which is liquidity and asymmetry. So if the order book in a market I'm interested in isn't deep enough or broad enough, I won't trade. But also the very fact that I'm looking to trade a significant amount might dissuade others from taking the opposite side of my bet because maybe I know something they don't. That being said, it feels to me that traditional financial markets suffer from the same problems. And yet we've managed to solve them by offering standardized securities or by having market makers step in to provide liquidity. Why can't we just replicate that model? What's so special about prediction markets? That's a good question. So one way that I've found useful to think about this is to treat financial markets as prediction markets and ask where they're better and where they're worse. And so like my my thought experiment on why it's tough to get market makers to participate in prediction markets and why why other markets can work better for some predicted purposes is um, let's say that you have a prediction market you're you're using a site where you can build arbitrary prediction markets and you decide that you are really interested in whether or not there's going to be a coup in venezuela in the next year and you're not just interested in in the next year but you're interested in the particular date and so you set up a coup this month market and then a coup next month market and so on. And then as as it gets closer, it's like coup this week, coup next week and so on. Um, so you have like this this range of markets. And let's say you're a market maker, like you're curious about this outcome. And so you're just going to you're going to start quoting a price and you're going to see what what people trade. And then 
you're doing that and you know you you've calculated the base rate of coups and you think that there's like a one percent monthly probability of a coup given everything we know and so you quote a market where you you buy at like half a percent and maybe you sell at two percent so you're making a nice spread if people trade randomly and then let's say um one day there's a big buyer for the second week of december coup market and so you sell a bunch of two percent and you raise your prices and then you can sell a bunch of five percent and you raise your prices and you can sell a bunch of ten percent like what do you think is going on what's obviously going on is someone has specific information they are highly confident in that outcome and they're still going to make 10 times their money after you've adjusted the price multiple times to take it that into account and then um even if you do make money from random punters who are doing you know little noise trades the more fine grain the market is the lower the probabilities will be which means the more leverage there is in exploiting them and so you probably if you're writing such an algorithm like such a market making algorithm you notice that 99 percent of the time you make money on trades because the price the spreads are huge and there are gamblers out there and then one percent of the time you lose many multiples of that because you were betting against an informed trader and you didn't have the information. So um, so maybe this person who is trying to do the coup, they realize that after they've put like $50 into this prediction market, the prices are no longer especially attractive and now they don't make much money. So they um, they call their, their offshore broker and tell them, I want you to put some of my numbered accounts money into something else that responds to a coup. And the broker says, well, we could do oil futures. And we could do as much as we want, pretty much. You know, you could make massive bets in oil futures. And the oil futures, you know, maybe they go up 5% on the day of the coup. And so in percentage terms, the gain's a lot smaller. But if you are buying millions of dollars worth and or, you know, more than that, the market is not going to recognize that as a really high impact, well-informed trade until you actually make your money after the fact. And so one reason for that is that you have lots of reasons you might trade oil futures. So airlines will sometimes bet on oil futures because they're concerned about oil prices. And then oil companies also use futures to hedge their exposure. And lenders to oil companies also use futures to hedge their exposure. Um, you have lots of um, investors slash speculators who are doing things like trying to estimate oil consumption by country all around the world and oil production all around the world. And they're trying to figure out is there a supply or demand imbalance? And then oil markets have plenty of options and derivatives. So some of the marginal oil traders are people who have a derivatives position and they're hedging their exposure. So like any given trade is really likely to be from someone who does not have imminent knowledge that will immediately cause the price to change. And so you can feel safe making a market in a product like that. So what that means is that when when prediction when asset markets are a good prediction market, it's because of something that was outside the model of the liquidity providers, because they didn't adjust prices in response to it, and they didn't set a really wide bid ask spread because of the fundamental uncertainty. But that also means that you you can sort of use them as a retrospective prediction market where you can say, it turns out this was a big deal because prices moved. You can occasionally, if you know there is one big determining event, you can sort of use prediction markets as a proxy for, or you can use asset markets as a proxy for the significance of that event. So um, in the early, like in the first few weeks of 2022, the big story in oil markets was the question of whether or not Russia will invade Ukraine, and if so, when. And... Brent crude prices went pretty much straight up throughout the year as it became more and more likely that there was an invasion. But that leads to another issue with real world markets as prediction markets, which is that those real world markets can actually affect the things they're trying to predict. So one of the ways to model Putin's behavior in invading Ukraine was that you have the benefit of the U 
you get to invade Ukraine, which you wanted to do. And then you have the cost of Western powers will impose sanctions. And if you are trying to figure out what the cost of those sanctions is, one thing to factor in is, is if oil prices are high, the sanctions are less damaging because even if you have to sell your oil at a discount, it's still more than you were selling it for six months ago. And the other is like the higher prices, higher energy prices go, the harder it is to actually have an effective sanctions regime because people will really suffer from high energy prices if they're high prices and then supply gets curtailed. So the the fact that oil prices were going up actually made an invasion more likely, which then caused oil prices to go up even more. And so you basically ended up with this really unstable equilibrium where low prices meant an invasion was less likely, but the more prices went up, the more an invasion became inevitable. Um, I do think prediction markets, they are, they're useful though for isolating those individual variables. They're useful for betting on the, the narrower inputs to a broad output. So um, if you, you know, it's kind of pointless to have, for example, a prediction market on will NVIDIA beat earnings this quarter because the stock market is already that prediction market. But if you had a prediction market on something like what will NVIDIA's pr uh, production of a particular kind of GPU be next quarter or what will be the performance gap between current line of GPUs and the next one, um, one, you have a set of people who might actually want to bet on that market to hedge. So if someone is um, running running a company that has AI hardware needs and they're considering buying a GPU and they don't know, should they buy it now or should they wait six months and buy the next version? A prediction market that allows them to buy it now and then make a large bet that the next version will actually be much better is, is a useful prediction market. So you do have some, some hedgers who are not directly trading on information and that encourages market makers. But I think in practice, um, it's just tough to have real money prediction markets on narrow issues that would only be of interest. It would be more of interest to people who are participating in the outcome. Um, you just end up with uh, with a lot of people trading on proprietary information and market makers shy away from that. Now, one modest proposal or just proposal in general is Robin Hansen's idea that we should just subsidize liquidity. Like we should say, um, market makers, we expect them to lose money because they're trading against informed traders and they don't have enough dumb money. So we'll subsidize them. And the subsidies actually increase liquidity enough that you could attract more dumb money. So subsidies might be this temporary thing. And there are some markets where like the market in sports betting, like um, just mathematically, the fact that bookie is a job and not a hobby, not an expensive hobby, like that indicates that in the aggregate, people who are betting on sports are losing money. Like they have to be after after the, the spread. And they're willing to do that. But the fact that that works in sports and it works in political betting and it works in gambling also tells you that people you need people need some reason to want to gamble on this particular thing. And it's got to be some combination of they lie to themselves with the odds or they just they find that the the event is more engaging if they have money on the line or, you know, they they debate these things with their friends and finally someone says well if you really think that's true there's easy money for you to make just bet on it um like you need you need that kind of demand for um less like ruthlessly well-informed capital in order to have a market that is safe for market makers which means that it's a market liquid enough for people with information to really want to participate in it in a recent essay you describe the two main frameworks that investors can use to make decisions writing that quote in general, people are either starting with an apparent mispricing and then building a thesis around it, 
or they're starting with a thesis and then using it to identify mispricings. In other words, investment research is about finding truths most people are wrong about. And the two main processes are to start with people being wrong or to start by determining what's true. Think of it as mistake first or truth first. When I think of mistake-driven investing, hedge funds are the investors that come to mind because they buy tons of data and they build asset pricing models and they obsess about transaction costs. And on the flip side, when I hear truth-first investing, I think of VCs because they have a really unique deal flow and often they get to see around the corner. Is it an oversimplification to draw this line between private and public markets? VCs are still looking for mistakes, but they're looking for the mistake of omission, which is this company actually has something great going on, but other investors don't see it. Um, what I think of truth first investors, what actually comes to mind is someone, an investor like Berkshire Hathaway, where their implicit process is they continuously assess a bunch of companies, decide at what price they'd be excited to buy. Periodically, the company's valuation drifts down to that price. They buy a ton of it, and they're often very happy with that decision. So they, they're doing a research process that is not determined by asking why the price might be wrong, but by asking what's the right price and then waiting for the asset to hit that price. And then if you, if you want to, like hedge funds definitely do look for what mistakes people, what mistakes the market is making and how soon will those mistakes be corrected. So they, they are thinking more about the, the mistake side of things, but they also actually have a process of continuously looking at often a narrow set of companies and asking, what are these companies worth relative to one another? Who is best and worst in this industry? Who's gaining or losing share? So they are thinking about these long-term questions. So I'd say like, um, those philosophical approaches, they are like at a high level, they are um, generally descriptive of people's people's research processes, but they don't, most people are doing a little bit of both. And in fact, sometimes you, you can have a process where it is truth first, but with an emphasis on mistakes to de-risk it. So this would be like the way a lot of proprietary traders do things where um, it is really easy to run a series of regressions and find some some market relationship that looks profitable. But um, and like one one approach is you just run a bunch of these regressions. You find you know thousands of signals that are each very small, but they all they all seem to work. And then you just run them all in parallel and um, don't think too hard about why that might exist. And then um, the other like the more rigorous approach there is you run these these regressions, but then you actually come up with some theory about the world that explains why this mispricing would exist. So it might be, you might find something like, um, there've been, there used to be, this used to come up in crypto sometimes that, um, there would actually be these payday driven crypto fluctuations. Like the price would go up, like when Japan, when crypto was really big in Japan, prices, I think, would actually go up around when Japanese workers got paid because they would get their paycheck, pay their bills, and then put some money into an account somewhere and speculate on something. Um, you can also have cases where you you have some hypothesis for why momentum would persist over some time period, like maybe when um, like there's a set of investors who will buy more when they have leverage, like when they, when they have the buying power. And so the price tends to keep rising, but then if they start getting margin calls, they have to sell in these chunks, but there's like a pause between when the price goes down and when the actual sell order hits. So maybe the maybe momentum on the way up is like this smooth process. And then when things start dropping, there are a bunch of these lurches downward as different margin calls get triggered. 
but you you want to actually have some view of what specific mistakes are people making or what are the constraints they folk that they face as institutions so like um interesting case study there would be um high yield bonds where um used to be like right now there are companies that issue high yield bonds and high yield it's like there's this cutoff so bonds have credit ratings right and you know it's like triple a really good almost no possibility of default down to like the credit rating indicates it's in default you probably won't get any money back and there's this cutoff at um where triple b means you're more likely than not to get your money back and double b means in the view of the rating agency it's pretty likely that you will not get 100 percent of your money back at the end of this so um we treated triple b and above as investment grade and everything below that as high yield or junk bonds and there are investors who have a mandate to only buy high yield bonds, which means if one of the bonds they own, or sorry, only buy investment grade bonds. It used to be there. There was no one with a high yield only mandate in like the 1970s. But if you were an investor and you could only own high yield bonds, then if one of your bonds gets downgraded to junk, you have to sell it. And what Michael Milken realized in the 70s was that means there are these four sellers and they are not super price sensitive because their main goal is not maximize their money it's minimize the time that this bond lives in their um in their portfolio and that meant that those bonds either the already downgraded bonds or the bonds that were likely to get downgraded were going to be underpriced and so you could buy them so there were there were investment managers who had a mandate to only only hold investment grade bonds so if a bond either got downgraded or they thought it was going to get downgraded they would have to sell and that made them a price insensitive seller. So if you chose to be the price sensitive buyer, that doesn't mean you buy every single downgraded bond, but it does mean that you can sometimes find some really good opportunities. And so that was like a mistake driven or constraint driven investment thesis that eventually turned into this investment thesis of um, there's at the right interest rate, it can make sense to lend money to companies that are pretty likely to go under that there's this continuum between equity and debt and the more um, the more on the edge the company is, the more the equity actually performs, or the more the debt performs like equity. Where if you you know if you buy I don't know if you buy a bond from Apple and Apple sells way more iPhones than expected, your bond's value does not change at all. Like that was just it was assumed that Apple would be able to make the money back. But if you are investing in some nearly bankrupt Android handset manufacturer and you buy their bonds at twenty cents of the dollar and then they release a new handset. It's actually really amazing. People buy it, and suddenly it looks like the company can can make its money back. Like you, you know, you could you could end up making your hundred cents on the dollar from that bond plus the interest. So you actually get the kind of return you would get as an equity investor. Um, and it's of course super risky, just like it would be risky to buy buy equity of a similar uncertainty and volatility. But the the Milken view was that you are if you are a lender to a company that's not especially credit worthy your your returns are actually going to be a lot more similar to what you get as an equity investor and so you should think of that kind of upside and there have been other other instances of that so um a space i find really interesting is the um companies like pipe that are doing these small loans to growth companies and what a lot of these lenders will do is they'll look at a business where the model is something to the effect of for every dollar we spend on marketing we get like 75 cents a year for five or 10 years. So like the, the present value of that is a lot higher than what we're spending. But in year one, the more we grow, the more money we lose, even though we're actually creating value as we grow. And so the pipe view is 
let's say the present value of that customer is $4. Well, we can lend you $2. And now your cash situation, instead of spend a dollar and then make it back, but not until a little over a year from now, it's like spend a dollar and now you have $2 to spend. So you can actually grow a lot faster. So for those companies too, they they actually have this return profile that looks more like equity with the difference that they have, they have to continue deploying more capital into this business. But over time, the the underwriting decision gets easier. There's more data. And so you can continue to do it. And as long as you're the easiest source of capital and as long as you're cheaper than equity capital, you can still put a lot of money to work in a, in a space like that. Um, it is like, it's super like any any lender that's growing extremely fast is always in this really tricky situation because they've always either found something truly new, like new way to find borrowers or a better way to underwrite them, or they have found a market that other lenders don't touch and it's for a good reason. And like every, you know, every five years someone discovers this market and starts lending into it, and then every every couple of years after that, they lose all their money. So you never know if that's the situation you're in, but like the broader point of credit and equity having sometimes similar performance characteristics if you are making the right investments like if you're choosing the right way to structure things i think that is a a pretty powerful mental model okay shifting gears i'd like to talk about stagnation the nobel prize winner robert solo infamously said you can see the computer age everywhere but in the productivity statistics I had heard the quote a long time ago, but it was really surprising for me recently when I discovered that he said it back in 1987. Since then, we've had consumer internet, enterprise SaaS, a litany of new devices, cloud computing, and yet the smartphone era has been the most economically stagnant period of the last century. If information is so useful, why hasn't information technology helped us to become more productive? Yeah, so it is true and surprising that the IT, the computer revolution did not meaningfully affect productivity as far as we know there was this burst of higher productivity in the late 90s which was probably that a lot of big companies incorporated computers and particularly network networked computers into their processes and just it made a lot of corporate friction a little bit less frictional but some of what the most valuable um, software companies do a lot of it is just a positive externality that is not actually captured in gdp so you could imagine arguing, um, for example, that Google's positive impact on the world, like from just people being able to Google stuff, people being able to save and search all their email and Gmail, that that is actually twice whatever revenue they collect from from their customers. And so in that case, maybe we do have like a missing trillion dollars of GDP that if we counted it, we would be we would feel better off, but we don't count it, so we don't. And actually, this is something that Alan Greenspan talked about in his um, in his irrational exuberant speech, I believe, in the '90s. Was um, he said that if someone switches from wearing glasses and contacts to getting LASIK surgery, that you do have this one-time GDP increase from from the surgery, but then they're actually spending less money and they actually have a better outcome. Like they they have a better life. So they're, they're richer, but GDP has gone down. And I think that that's, that's arguably true for, for a fair number of software companies that they give us these nice tools that we don't necessarily monetize, but they do actually make us happier and better off. And so the, the positive impact of these is understated, but then the worry there is 
like it, it you always want to worry about someone who says that um the things we measure look really bad but not to worry the things no one measures that we can't measure those are really good and in fact they're they're so much better that it offsets all of the bad problems you can actually point to so i try to be cautious about that and i, I also worry that that kind of consumption like if if the world is richer because we would be willing to pay you know hundred dollars a month for netflix level entertainment but we don't have to because netflix is cheaper than that like that that's also a world where more people are just watching netflix so and also maybe maybe we need to go back and revise revise our gdp numbers for for pastimes where um you know the rise of the book also created these massive positive externalities those externalities were not captured by just what is the cost of a book when you buy one which is the input into gdp but um, some of those externalities were in fact captured because if you buy a book that makes you better at your job and you are able to produce more stuff and you get a raise, then that does flow through GDP. So I think if we, if we want to argue that productivity goes up, um, because the entertainment is so much better, that's kind of depressing, but could be true. But if we want to argue that productivity goes up because the software tools we use are so much better then we actually want to look for that improvement in, um, in in the real world metrics in the in the not abstract metrics and we don't we don't see very much of that um one possibility which is promising is that the pace of new technology adoption at some points during the computer revolution was so high that people were more productive in a steady state but they were also spending more time learning these new systems and integrating them so if you look at the the impact of electrification on factories there was this long period where it did matter but it turned out that to actually electrify a factory, you had to basically redesign a factory on the assumption that you're using electricity and not some other power source. So the existing factories didn't adopt it or didn't adopt it at meaningful scale. And the new factories hadn't been built yet. So there was a long period where you had to basically wait for the old ones to get shut down. And then you also, because you didn't have a lot of demand for electrical equipment early on, there weren't a lot of efficiency gains in it. And people just weren't weren't rapidly learning how to run a modern factory. So it did, it did require some more conditions. I think a third possibility is that um, software, like the quantity of software produced has gone way up. The quality of software produced has gone down. And that one... Um, I think it's a nuanced argument because in many ways, the software tools we use are the best they've ever been. Like Chrome is just a really nice browser. I use it all the time. I like it a lot. The email client I use, Superhuman, it's very fast. It does what I need it to do. It does it really well. But we do. what I do tend to see is that new software products tend to be pretty bloated and they tend to use a lot of memory. And um, sometimes they get dumbed down in a way that is bad for the muscle memory of the power users, but maybe good for the marginal user. And so like the lived experience of anyone who really likes software and likes new software is that software is always getting worse and that you have to replace your computer more often than you really should. But the, the experience of the average person is this software was just not on my radar and now I can use it and now it's wonderful. But over time, we may be accumulating lots of technical debt. Like we know we're accumulating lots of technical debt. Like a lot of people are rushing stuff out. Some of it has bugs. Some of it has performance issues. And um, that is that is potentially a drag and potentially a reason that the economy is, is performing below potential is that you have a lot of companies that win market share by being the first to get an adequate product out the door. And then they have this product that has all sorts of backwards compatibility issues and is really tough to update and 
maybe they realized that there was some some part of their approach that was actually just fundamentally wrong, like probably that they were copying the old business process more and they should have thought of what the new process should be and that they can't change it. Their users are set in their ways and don't want to change it. Um, I think a good thing to read on that is some of Stripe's documentation about their API because payments are a category where you can't just make breaking changes. And you know if you do, you are ruining someone's business. So when they create a new feature, they have to think about this being a feature that is maintained in its current state for a very long time, like decades. And that does require you to think a lot about how much the world could change over time, what kinds of changes you need to have already built into your assumptions, what kinds of changes wouldn't actually affect those assumptions very much. and um, and you know you need to you need to have that vision of the future already planned out. But once you've done that, then you have sort of paid down your software debt in you've paid down your tech debt in advance. Um, I think tech debt is like in general, it's an interesting concept because it clearly exists. It's clearly important. It's probably probably understudied. Um, the term tech debt always gets used pejoratively, but like a lot of companies are financed by debt and they do just fine. So. I think the optimal level of tech debt is not zero, except in a handful of domains where it's either it's mission critical software in some sense, where you actually do want to get the number of bugs down as close to zero as you can, the number of future revisions as low as possible. You want to be um, the kind of software where the version number approaches an asymptote instead of always going up over time. But um, yeah, there's like having some level of tech debt, having some level, some set of decisions where you make the decision just so you can ship a product and get feedback and you know that that decision is not optimal. That's probably probably fine, but it does mean that we have these pockets of inefficiency within the high growth parts of the economy where there are just some, some things that are somewhat broken. Some companies just have to sometimes stop what they're doing, rebuild everything on new assumptions. Um, both Amazon and Microsoft actually did that at one point. So for Microsoft, it was for security where there were just so many, so many viruses, so many worms that were targeting Windows machines and Microsoft was like their customers were complaining and the media was also complaining. So they realized they just, they needed to rebuild their operating system on the assumption that this is going to be a system that runs on a machine that's plugged in, like connected to the internet. So people are going to attack it. It is going to have more market share than any other system. So it's the one that people will be looking for exploits in. It's the one people will be building tools to subvert. And we just need to operate on the assumption that that's true. For Amazon, the the halt where they just stopped shipping new products was um, in the early days of AWS, where Bezos had that mandate from, down, from on high that was like everything at, at Amazon needs to plug into every other part of Amazon as if they were independent third-party companies. So you can't build a software service that works for some Amazon subsidiary without imagining it as its own standalone business that could charge an external customer. Um, there's a wonderful, wonderful Steve Yagi piece on on this memo. And he does say like Amazon was not able to ship for a while because everyone was rebuilding everything. But once they rebuilt it that way, what they had basically done was they'd sacrificed some of their immediate momentum in exchange for a... Uh, a more aggressive slope on the growth curve where they could actually get to a higher level before they they banged into another asymptote. And I think optimizing optimizing companies and organizations on what is the next scaling bottleneck and how do we deal with that now is is an important practice, but it's also also one where 
you um, there's a point which you could take it too far. There have been products where people just worked on it for years because they wanted it to be perfect. By the time they released it, it was irrelevant or they never released it. So you can do too much of that. But I think doing some of that and being very conscious about where you draw the line of like, we know this can't scale indefinitely and we just can't tackle that scaling problem right now. It's not the appropriate time, but we need to be aware of it because um, having fewer things to revise and fewer set in stone decisions that affect that is uh, going to make it easier. In April of this year, you published an essay in Pirate Wires, co-authored with Tobias Huber, titled Against Safetyism. And in it, you wrote that, quote, collective risk intolerance has infected and paralyzed society and culture at large, and that obsessively attempting to eliminate all visible risks often creates invisible risks that are far more consequential for human flourishing. Specifically, what kind of risk-taking would you like to see more of in society? Um, I think we... I worry about our elites. I feel bad for them um, because we have we have a really good system actually for identifying talent fairly early and putting people on this track where if you if you can perform well academically, you get particular credentials that get you a very good shot at some very good jobs, and those jobs have a nice promotion path where you will probably be running something important after a while, but. Um, there are certain kinds of talent that just don't get recognized by a system like that. And um, I worry that there are just a lot of high functioning people who are at an organization that's actually solved most of its big problems. And now they're optimizing the small problems or they're optimizing these internal frictional problems that sort of are more likely to exist at an organization where everyone is a very skilled mercenary and no one's just ideologically committed to building whatever this institution is trying to build. That is, that is one piece of it. I worry that there's like too much human capital allocated towards refining things that already work pretty well and not enough human capital allocated towards building totally new things. Um, I think there's also like a lot of companies are just sort of, they're afraid to be ideological. So in my, um, my newsletter this morning, I was pointing out that a lot of the AI labs talk about safety, but there aren't, there doesn't seem to be one that's explicitly accelerationist. Like they, it's sort of as accelerationist as they, can, as they can be while still being safety first. And depending on your attitude towards AI risk, like it, it's like the idea of an explicitly accelerationist AI lab is kind of horrifying. But what you end up with is that every, every AI company is going to have a mix of people who are there because they're worried about the apocalypse and they want to build good AI before someone else builds evil AI. And then other people who are not super worried about the apocalypse, but they do want to build something really cool. And so they're going to try to push forward. And so you have two groups with very, um, with overlapping ideologies for like the next version of GPT, but maybe diametrically opposed ideologies for some other future product. And it, uh, it, can, lead to, it can lead to internal conflict. And those conflicts can have really nonlinear outcomes because once, once it feels to the more um, optimistic people, like there's a decel, you know, doomer coup going on, then they actually want to run their accelerationist coup, and it's going to be a more accelerationist and more of a coup than it otherwise would have been because they they see that threat. And one solution to that is um, have a company that is more of an ideological monoculture, and have a company where people pretty much all agree that there's. There's a version of the world that they are trying to build and it won't get built elsewhere. So you don't want to be one of 50 companies that's safety conscious. You want to be one that says, actually, the risk of being safety conscious is too high. Like, I think self-driving cars might be a less fraught 
analogy because um, it would just take a lot of effort for self-driving cars to kill as many people as the absence of good self-driving kill cars kills in a given year. Um, so, but it's also really tough to say that publicly because at that point you are actually talking about literal human lives. And, um, and even if you, what you're talking about is saving them in the future and risking them in the present, it's the, the risk in the present that becomes really salient to people. But with self-driving cars, um, if you, like, one view is that um, riding a car, like, like driving a car is, is not one of those tasks like programming or creative fiction or art where a computer could do it. It's actually like the highest expression of humanity and no computer could ever do it. But that's probably not true. It's, uh, it is probably true that computers are improving faster than humans. They're collecting more data than humans. Um, they can coordinate better than humans. And so at some point it flips and the self-driving cars are just self-evidently safer. Like that's already statistically true. Um, there was a study that believe Waymo did with a Swiss reinsurance company where um, the self-driving cars on a per mile driven basis were much safer than comparable human driven cars. And it's possible that there's like some of that could be selection effects. On the other hand, insurance companies are, uh, they're generally familiar with selection effects, like selection effects, understanding selection effects is how you become an insurance company that didn't go bankrupt. So they probably did not just get completely bamboozled by Google saying like, we had this car drive three miles an hour round and round in an enclosed track that no one could see and it never hit anything because there's nothing to hit and therefore it's safer than any human driven car. Like, no, they they probably did some kind of like for like comparison, looking at vehicle miles driven in in particular locations at particular times and um, yeah, found that the accident rate for self-driving cars was lower. And so, so we do have some evidence that that's already happening um, there was there was one self-driving enterprise that did actually try to be the more more accelerationist one, um, which was um, Anthony Lewandowski's thing, um, where he um, I, I'm blanking on the name of his um, of his car company, but um, he had a company and um, it got acquired. Oh, Auto. Um, it got acquired by by Uber, and um, one profile of him said that there was a poster in the company's office that just said safety third. <laughs> and if you, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a stark thing to say, but like you can't, sometimes companies try to have a company culture where they just, they pick from a list of generic things and they say like, we work hard and play hard, you know, we are a family, whatever, but it's unless you are actually biting the bullet and saying something that would make some people uncomfortable with your culture, it's not really a company culture. It's just platitudes. So if, if you say like, instead of saying like we work hard and play hard, if we say like one of our company benefits is we will bail you out up to some dollar amount, like that says we work hard and we play hard, or at least that says we play hard. Um, like, cause you have to have something similar for the work hard side. And if it's like, if we, you know, if we're not just a company, but we're also a family, does that mean like, if you become disabled and can't work, the company's just going to pay your salary indefinitely? Like that would make a statement. I think a lot of people might be annoyed if they were making less money because one of their coworkers was or claimed to be disabled, but that would tell you this company is serious about that. Um, the companies that actually have a distinctive corporate culture, they are just off-putting to a lot of people. So Bridgewater has been in the news because of the Bridgewater book and um, the people I've talked to at Bridgewater who worked there for a while really liked it. And when I've read outside descriptions of the culture, if it's something like 
you can just be direct and it's very evidence-based and non-hierarchical. Like that might be more, the book makes it sound like that's more aspirational than true, but uh, it can be exhausting to work at a company where you you can be aware that someone is saying something stupid and it's actually a faux pas for you to say that's stupid. Like it's like anytime the culture rewards stupidity over other things, it's going to be a dumber culture. And um, there is like, it could be totally exhausting to have people constantly calling you on your mistakes, but it also probably raises the the standards for the output. And in an ideal world, you just have more people sorting themselves into a company that actually fits in with their personality type. Um, I read a book that was uh, praising Southwest Airlines and talking about their culture, which was very, very zany, very friendly, very prank focused. And I thought I just could not work at an organization like that. Like, if if smiling is practically mandatory and you've got to do goofy stuff and dress in costumes sometimes like it's not for me but then i thought that's good like the people who are really into that stuff are at southwest and so they're not working with me and so i don't have to put up with even a small amount of it if they filter themselves into that and i think that general that general kind of cultural fragmentation like if it's if it's fragmentation based on strongly held beliefs about how humans should behave that is good and so I'm, I'm excited to see more companies actually take that view of either we are explicitly non-ideological, we just want to run our business as effectively as possible, or like we are ideological and our ideology is weird and you are welcome to be uncomfortable with it. Just you don't have to work here. Awesome answer. Continuing on the theme of ideology, I think that the stagnation hypothesis and the importance of progress have become pretty consensus views in niche tech circles. But in broader society, I can't help but feel that we're losing the culture war. As you highlighted in your article, the prevalence of anti-growth safetyism and nimbyism is bad enough. But more and more, I'm noticing that the so-called degrowth movement is becoming a larger and larger share of the zeitgeist. You're an expert in communicating complex ideas. How could we be doing a better job at challenging these Malthusian limits to growth style memes? I think we should be madder at them. Um, I really dislike them. Um, I think they are, maybe some of them are not terrible people, but they've often, what they often do is they look at the positive side effect of a negative thing, or like they, they bundle together the negative side and positive side of, of economic growth. And then they, they actually optimize for getting rid of the positive side as a proxy. This is like way to roughly estimate how much of the negative stuff you're getting rid of, but that's um, that's lazy and stupid because you can also explicitly measure the negative side of things. Like if you say, I want to be degrowth because I want to, like we should drive less because I want to reduce car emissions. Well, now you don't care as much about electrifying the grid. And so the cars that are left are probably going to pollute more. And since electrifying the grid, uh, or not electrifying the grid, like electrifying the, the auto, um, the, the global auto fleet, like, to, to electrify the global auto fleet is going to require enormous capital expenditures. Large capital expenditures are much easier for a rich society to do than a poor society to do. And so if you have this opportunity to spend a lot of money in order to improve the world, or this opportunity to stop, reduce some harm to the world by impoverishing yourself, um, why would you why would you choose the latter? I also, um, like a lot of there are a lot of cases where in the early stages of economic growth, the relative externalities, the externalities are rel- are high relative to the outputs, but the outputs are so low that the externalities are invisible. So um, energy production, like even fossil fuel based energy production used to be much, much higher emissions relative to the amount of energy that was actually created for human consumption. 
And um, we, as we scaled, one thing that happened was we started recognizing this emissions cost as um, as a form of waste. Like if you if you have an energy intensive manufacturing process, it's a manufacturing process that is spending like it's wasting some energy that could otherwise be used productively. So um, different different companies and other organizations did actually focus on reducing waste and reducing emissions before CO2 levels were on anybody's radar. Like Japan was doing that in the 60s and 70s because importing oil was really expensive in Japan. Their industrial planners did not think they would always have access to Middle Eastern oil. Um, and they had this multi-pronged strategy. So one prong of the strategy was people in Japan were, um, they, they subsidized people learning Arabic. So they would at least have someone who could talk to the Saudis if things got bad. And then um, they also had pretty high tariffs on cars that have domestic auto manufacturing and they they tended to make really small lightweight cars and in fact one of the concerns that Japan's um, like the I think the CEO of Toyota had this concern in the 1960s and early 70s he was actually worried about an oil crisis not because it would be bad for Japanese cars he thought it would be so good for Japanese cars that it would increase their market share in the United States and that would happen so fast that there would be tariffs and other trade restrictions that would prevent them from getting their natural market share in the long run. So this is like many steps ahead. Like no one at Chrysler was thinking so many hops ahead. And um, then they were like the the U.S. companies were very much on the defensive for a very long time. But even like the net effect of that was that we actually had a lower emissions auto fleet. But it wasn't because people were planning on lower emissions. It was because someone looked at a process, saw there was waste, hated that there was waste, realized that they could actually make a buck by reducing that waste, and then did it. Um, there, there are like a lot of poor countries. If you look at their energy consumption, it is going to be pretty inefficient. Um, so if people are still using lamps that burn something for illumination. Those are wildly inefficient relative to light bulbs. But if you don't have a functioning power grid, then you need those anyway. Um, generators, similarly, like those get deployed in a lot of developing markets because the power supply is intermittent. Um, if you have a power plant that is servicing a small geography where um, people are not necessarily reliable at paying their bills and where um, people will tap into the power lines and steal electricity or other things like that. Like you have a lot of costs that actually just raise the marginal cost of electricity. Sometimes scale is what actually makes things better. And if we're able to produce a lot of stuff at scale, we can also ask the question of how much on the degrowth side, like how much do we want to prevent climate change? And how much do we just say it is we are, we are past the point, you know, not, not in um, climate tipping point terms, but just in institutional terms. Like we're, we're past the point where we could actually realistically stop emissions growth, but we're not past the point where we can mitigate the impact of emissions growth. And right now, degrowth, like they, they do sort of talk to more of a Western audience, but um, if you're concerned about degrowth on the emissions side, you really need to focus on India and China. And it's just completely untenable for people from wealthy Western countries to talk to comparatively impoverished countries and say, you can't have even half the GDP per capita that we do because we just, we partied too hard. We enjoyed ourselves too much. And um, we, we've now suffered the consequences. Like it's just not going to work. So um, I tend to think of, of degrowth as um stupid and bad and also unworkable and i think it should be it should be more of a faux pas um you know like i have kids and they're going to grow up in the future and if someone who 
does not have that kind of investment in the future is making the, the my kids future worse so they can feel better that's um they're kind of stealing from my family and stealing from many other people's families and um they should they should stop and they should feel really bad about that so um yeah that's that's my general view on degrowth like i don't i don't think we need a dark age um i don't think that imposing a dark age on somebody else's kids is at all acceptable um, I do think that because degrowth people are extremely annoying and don't have a coherent model of reality and um, don't actually don't understand where where consumption growth, like where degrowth could help and where it couldn't and where it can be implemented and where it can't, like um, I think they they are sort of rendering themselves irrelevant just by continuing to talk, and so that makes me optimistic. Like every time they talk and say new things, I feel better about how much they've just been discredited. But um, we can certainly we can certainly accelerate the process. Like I'm I'm a, a pro growth person. Like you know, good things are good. More of them faster is even better. So um, yeah, I think it should just it should be more socially humiliating to to admit that you are a degrowther. Um, it should be something you feel deep shame about and that you try to improve about yourself. So I wish them luck. Another awesome answer. I know that you and Tobias are busy co-authoring a book together, which will be published by Stripe Press next year. And I totally understand if you prefer to keep it under wraps, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for a teaser on uh, what you're working on. Yeah, like I will, we can save some of the details for the book tour, but um, the the core idea goes back to this bubble question, and um, we we were reading about different different periods where um, technology led to significant improvements in living standards, and we started to notice that a lot of them either were a literal bubble or they were some government funded mega project that actually had a lot of the characteristics of a bubble, where you have this small set of people who believe in it. The project is massively overfunded. You have this huge influx of talent. People are building everything in parallel. So it all gets done in time. And they kind of like everyone is setting the pace for everyone else and they're setting a really fast pace. So the book is just a longer exploration of that. Um, we go deep into some case studies, um, both the both public sector stuff, so Apollo um, Apollo program and Manhattan Project, and then private sector stuff um, like um, fracking or uh, Moore's law or corporate R and D labs. Now, a lot of these, interestingly enough, like you you can view them as public sector or private sector. Um, I guess it's hard to make Manhattan Project anything other than a public sector thing. Like there there were private companies that did it. Some of them, though, they they deliberately avoided making too much money on it. Like they sort of they didn't know exactly what it was, but they knew it was like big and destructive. Um, like DuPont, they I think they leased a bunch of assets to the government and um, tried to only like they asked to only get paid a dollar above cost because they really didn't want to be once again the merchants of death. Um, but like for the, the private sector pieces, there's still a lot of government involvement. So the early days of the transistor industry, it was very much a federally subsidized thing. NASA kind of felt like this Fairchild semiconductor company, they're, they're good, but they will probably go broke because no one needs this right now, but NASA really needed it. And so NASA actually overused transistors in, um, in stuff that could have worked fine with vacuum tubes specifically so that Fairchild would get more contracts and survive. Um, fracking, like oil and gas is just deeply tied with the, with government and property rights. Um, I've read the claim that the, that, um, the standard, like the U S is kind of weird where, um, mineral rights are owned by individuals and not owned by the government by default. Um, 
allegedly this is some kind of weird mistranslation of the Mexican or like the Texas constitution that was trying to be backwards compatible with Mexican law or something like it wasn't really intended to be this way, but um, Texas did accidentally privatize all of its mineral wealth um, very early in its existence before like back when, when cotton and timber were the big industries. Um, and so that, that has an effect on things. So it's uh, like, it's not a purely private sector thing, but bubbles, they can be so much more flexible than government spending and they can become self-fulfilling in a way that um, eventually the government just reaches these institutional speed bumps. Whereas the private sector, like if, if people want to deploy capital, they can scale up capital deployment really fast into really extreme levels. But yeah, that's that's the main thrust of the book. And we, we also talk about some of the philosophical implications. We talk about the um, acceleration or deceleration idea and that there is actually this moral imperative to discover new things, build them, like bring them to the market in order to bring them to humanity. And um, I, I do view it as an important thing that humans do, that we, we invent new things. We go a little bit overboard with our optimism around those new things, but we ultimately end up making the world a, a better place um, in very specific, measurable ways. That sounds awesome. I look forward to reading it. Thanks. In a recent episode of your new podcast, your co-host Eric thought back to Sam Altman's departure from Y Combinator in 2019 and noticed that at the time he took a step back and ended up going from one impressive venture to an even more impressive venture with OpenAI, having correctly guessed that AI would be the next major impact area. Eric asked you to put yourself in Sam's shoes and think about what you would bet on being the next big thing, and your answer was really interesting. You said that it might be working on real-world communities, maybe in the form of special economic zones. Why do you think special economic zones hold such promise, and what does it mean to work on a special economic zone project? What does that look like? Yeah, I, I think there are... Well, well part of my answer was... Um, that is like a really hard question to answer very quickly. And my guess is like Sam was spending more and more time thinking about AI until it just, you know, swallowed all these other interests. So um, it's, it's really hard to do that on the fly, but yeah, what I think is interesting about special economic zones and new cities and virtual communities that people are loyal to in a way that they're not currently loyal to tangible real world communities. Like what you're doing there is, increasing the pace at which institutions can evolve and older institutions because they're very well optimized for their existing environment it takes them a long time to adjust to new circumstances and um, when circumstances are moving faster than that institution can handle then um, it starts being unable to serve its original purpose and i think there's always a question with any institution that's not working well as to how much you should focus on reforming it and how much you should focus on rebuilding it but from a broader perspective, what often seems to happen is the reforms are partly catalyzed by people building alternatives. And so if you, um, you know, like there were, there were serious problems with the Catholic church 500 years ago and, um, Martin Luther certainly could have, could have taken a different approach, um, and kind of set in motion something that was, I think, very different from what he intended, but it did actually catalyze the church to rethink some serious things and try to fix itself up, um, to take a, a more, more modern and more secular example. Um, I think Facebook had gotten a little bit too slow and overconfident and then TikTok really scared them and Apple really scared them too. And, um, what the TikTok thing told them was they actually need a faster pace of product improvement. They need to be 
more willing to sacrifice near-term revenue in order to maintain parity with new players who have mastered some kind of new new medium for self-expression online. And what Apple told them was very important to control your own destiny, very important to make sure that if there is a new platform, like the, the next platform gets built by the people who will monetize it. Because that's like, that is a kind of weird thing about the the smartphone sector today is that there are these, so Apple and Google have these separate but kind of similar chokeholds on parts of the ecosystem. It's hard to build things without their permission, but they don't have this um, direct economic alignment with, uh, with some parts of their ecosystem. So they're very aligned with anyone who builds a business where you buy digital products through that business but they're um, weakly to not at all aligned with someone whose business is either you buy physical things and you know Apple does not get a cut, Google does not get a cut, or you are looking at ads. Um, but those are those are both um, pretty pretty valuable activities. Mobile commerce is really big, and the um, commerce generally that is catalyzed by mobile ads is also a pretty big category. So I think um, you know one view is just if you were rebuilding the App Store, you might have a different taxation system that tries to evenly apply to different industries. But I think another, like the the Facebook view is if you have a business that is built on some platform and that platform is owned by a different company, it's a for-profit company that is just not economically aligned with you, then you are always at risk and you generally won't get a warning ahead of time that things are going to change because it's just not, not in the other company's interest to tell you. So, um, and I think Facebook had tried, they tried to do some kind of partnership with Apple where they would actually share more. I think that happened um, and they got turned down. But um, I think Facebook's Facebook's view on the metaverse is that there will be this, um, this utility layer that they control. They will be able to build the things they want to build on it. They will probably be able to set up incentives such that there are a lot of third parties building cool stuff and they're also building cool stuff, but they just don't want it to be controlled by Apple. Um, that... That may or may not work out. Um, I don't know. I I'm not personally that excited to to live forever in the metaverse or something like that. But it does it does speak to their awareness that there was this external threat and that they had to really improve themselves and take substantial risks in order to mitigate that threat. So um, yeah, I think I think governments will like if if we end up in a world where the U.S. is actually experiencing a brain drain to some to a charter city. For example, I think that will make American policymakers seriously reconsider what they can do to make the U.S. as attractive as possible to the world's most talented people, which has been it's been an American competitive advantage for an insanely long time and is probably an advantage like we're we've designed a lot of our institutions around um, maximizing that. But um, if that's no longer an advantage or if that's an advantage the U.S. has taken for granted for too long, then um, things will need to change. Okay, this brings me to my final question. You've previously described the diff as being the kind of business that accumulates a lot of potential energy. Is there a wish list or an area in which you'd love to channel that potential energy going to the future? A lot of the stuff that I am doing right now, I would like to continue to do just at, at greater and greater scale. So um, the diff, it is a newsletter business with subscriptions and ads. It's also a recruiting business. It's also top of funnel for an angel investing syndicate and, um, those other those two businesses, the recruiting and the angel investing, have been growing faster, and I think will continue to grow faster. 
and I'll I'll look at other ways to other ways to continue to extend that kind of thing. But the, the thing with the newsletter is that you are you're accumulating a network of people. They all have a set of interests in common. They've all opted into something that most people do not opt into, and so those people have a lot in common. There are a lot of things that they can do together. And so the original idea behind recruiting was just, I will find the connections that should exist in this network and make those connections and get paid. It's always nice. And um, the the investing is similar, that there are a lot of people in the network who want to back interesting new companies. There are also a lot of people in the network who are starting such companies. And so connecting those two is is very powerful. And I'll I'll be continuing to look for for other ways that, that I can do that. Maybe it'll be um, a matchmaking service next. We'll see. But... Um, I think there are just, um, it's interesting to think about the world as this uh, network traversal problem where you are, if you, if there's someone you want to work with, you have to figure out who that person is, and then you have to figure out your connections to that person. And a fair number of very profitable online companies have, have mastered that. But actually, the big network effect type companies are often companies in financial services where, um, you know, if you... If you are working with Goldman Sachs, what you're basically doing is tapping into their network of experts on the various financial problems that you will have, and then outsourcing a lot of that to Goldman, and um, you know, hopefully exercising some agency on your own, but also outsourcing a lot of the details to them. And those that kind of talent matching can be really, really powerful. Like, um, I think if you just did a thought experiment of what percentage of people are in the absolute ideal job for them right now, where it's the best for them and the best for the world. I think the the percentage is probably extremely low, but um, in a world with perfect information and perfectly efficient hiring markets, that percentage would be you know ninety eight percent of them are doing the exact thing they should be doing, and the other two percent are on sabbatical. So, yeah, getting getting to that world is is important to me. It's uh, the diff is um, fundamentally over a sufficiently long period. It's it's a eudaimonia company. That sounds like a very inspiring mission. Well, Bern, thank you so much for the time that you've given me today. Thank you for uh, fighting the good fight. And uh, thank you for having been a guest on the Splinter Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.